Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. Superhero Movie Month continues with episode 19. Hard to believe I'm already there. Oh, time flies when you're trapped inside and can do nothing else but podcast. So, as uh, as I talked about last week, Super Movie, Superhero Movie Month. Ooh, say that 15 times fast. And no, I won't do that because that would be awful. Just awful. Uh, today, or uh, when you're hearing this on Friday, I believe, was actually supposed to be the initial release date or the original release date of Black Widow, the start of Phase 4 of the MCU. But like everything else in the world, it's all been put on hold and pushed back. So I figured, why the hell we'll do, or what the hell we'll just keep celebrating superheroes this month anyway. There's lots of other weird, great, fun superheroes out there to talk about, so... That's what I'm going to do. Started last week with kind of the roots of the modern superhero movie with Blade and X-Men. Now I decided for this week, going to go really far field to a uh, to a couple of real oddball pictures. In a climate dominated by the MCU, let's face it, they dominate the business. The DCU has kind of gotten back on their feet, you could say, a little bit with Aquaman and Shazam. But it's it's MCU's ball game. Other people show up every now and then and lob a couple of pitches, or they let you know they let them come in and you know throw the opening pitch of a game or walk out and shake their hats. But it's the MCU's ball game. But so because they dominate so much, it's it is hard to remember for a lot of people that there were superhero movies long before the MCU and long before even the modern comic book movie kicked off as we know it. So that's what I'm dipping into this week. Uh, These two movies, one is much more well-known, a very famous flop, and the other one is kind of its own weird, strange duck, pun intended. So can guess which one. So to kick things off, I'm going to be looking at Full Moon's Dr. Mordred. And this was directed by Albert and Charles Band, the father-son directing team, and came out in 1992. So, synopsis. And synopsi? Synopsi be multiple? And synopsis is one? Anyway, it doesn't really matter. An unspeakable evil has come into our dimension and wants to rule over Earth, and only a mysterious sorcerer known as Dr. Mordred can stop him. So, as I was saying, there's been comic book movies or adaptations of comic books for years. Is almost as long, Hollywood's been doing these as almost as long as the comic book form itself has existed as a method of storytelling. And stories and characters have been bought up over the years all the time. Studios, comic book artists, and companies are selling the, the rights to different companies. And sometimes these stories and characters find their way to the big screen, or they sit and collect dust until the options run out. Now, sometimes the people that had bought these rights they let them go gracefully. Like, you know what? We couldn't get a production up off its feet in time in the way we wanted to do it, and the rights revert back to their original holders. Sometimes companies rush productions at the 11th hour to desperately hold on to the rights. Uh, A few examples of that, Roger Corman's very famous adaptation of Fantastic Four from the 90s, which is just hilarious. And Dimension Films was very uh, very well known for doing this. They rushed a couple of Hellraiser sequels into production it, at the last minute, Children of the Corn, in a, a desperate attempt to hold on to the rights. And then sometimes we get Full Moon's Dr. Mordred, which is a completely different animal. Now, there was a time when Marvel, before it became Marvel Studios and the MCU kicked off, when they would sell the screen rights, the character rights off 
to pretty much anyone that could pay. If you had the dime, they would license their characters. That's really what it came down to. Now, that's something that has come back to haunt them uh, when Marvel Studios started. Uh, It's one of the big things people were excited about when Disney acquired Fox because it brought back into the fold the X-Men, Fantastic Four, and all the characters associated with that, which is huge, hundreds and hundreds of characters. Uh, Sony currently owns the the Spider-Man rights, which is another huge whack of characters, and they've been kind of playing in each other's sandboxes. But most of the time, back in the day when Marvel would option the rights out to different studios, nothing would come of it. Um, Comic book movies were hard to make then. They're hard to make now and do them right. Uh, I guess the Incredible Hulk TV series, probably one of the more famous adaptations of a Marvel character back in the day. For years, the big screen comic book movie was dominated by DC with Superman and Batman. So uh, in terms of a couple examples of these weird ones, uh, Canon famously had the Spider-Man rights for a while and went so far as to do a big announcement that they were going to make the film and the rights reverted back when they couldn't get anything off the ground or the company collapsed, one of the two. Uh, James Cameron was attached to it for a while. There's been, stuff has been bought and gone back and forth for years. Now, if Canon can jump into the into the rights game and make try and make movies far above their means, not to be left out, Charlie Band of Full Moon Pictures optioned the character of Doctor Strange. I'm assuming at the time the rights were probably pretty cheap. I think there was a TV pilot that was made in the 70s, maybe early 80s. They did kind of a a TV movie that was supposed to be a backdoor to a pilot, which is how they used to do it back in the day. And nothing came of it. I've seen clips from it, and it's fucking hilarious. And not only the fact that I'm assuming it was cheap, it also kind of fit into the company's fantasy tone. Because Full Moon Pictures, other than a couple of one-offs, were notoriously lighter affairs. And something to do with magic and wizards and stuff would have fit perfectly into their into their modus operandi. But Charlie Band being Charlie Band didn't manage to get the film made before the rights expired. But, you know, never... Never wanted to let reality uh, stop him. He pushed ahead, retooled the script, and made this instead. Now, it's the concept... You can't even call this a mockbuster, or I guess you could call it a progenitor of a mockbuster. These are common things. Asylum has been well-known for years for doing these. You know, Transformers hit theaters that Friday... In the video store, you'd see Transmorphers. You know, Terminator 4 comes out in theaters. All of a sudden, The Terminators hits hits the video shelves. So, and the history of home video is kind of based around similar sounding titles to get you to pick the movie up off the, off the shelf and bring it home. And in a lot of cases, thinking you're renting something else. Delightfully deceitful or deceitful. That's the word. Now, I it might sound like I'm uh, I might be poo-pooing or, or shit talking a little bit about Full Moon, and I I don't mean to in a lot of respects. I do love Full Moon. I have it has its own shelf out in my collection. I've been a big fan of there of the the good years of Full Moon for a long time, and I know obviously I, what can I say? It's Full Moon. Everybody loves them. But I had I, having worked for. Fan Expo and doing uh, Festival of Fear for a lot of years, I had a, a an unfortunate run-in with Full Moon uh, that kind of soured me on the whole thing. I had worked really hard to put together a panel uh, to celebrate uh, Reanimator and From Beyond, 
and uh, Charlie Bam was supposed to be a guest. And I just don't know if he was having a uh, an off weekend or several weeks, but it just uh, it just didn't pan out to be a bit of a, a very good experience. It's one of those don't meet your hero things because Charlie Van isn't wasn't is in a lot of extents still still one of my heroes. So while I might get a little a little snidely at uh, at some points here, don't don't get me wrong. I I do love this era of Full Moon quite a bit. But enough of that. Uh, as I was saying, so Full Moon had had the rights to Doctor Strange and had been developing the project when the the rights reverted. Now, never to let anything like that stand in his way, because at during that time, during kind of the uh, the early days of Full Moon, it was just a factory. They just ramped up uh, productions, and that that early burst, kind of from about eighty nine ninety, starting like Puppet Master, up until about Puppet Master five or so, that whole era of five or six years, put out some absolutely awesome films. But they wouldn't. They would never let something like the loss of the rights to characters stand in their way if they wanted to make the movie, especially if some bread had already been spent on production. They sure as shit weren't going to let that stop. If there were sets or costumes built, they were making a movie. It didn't matter what. So the script was retooled, and instead of Doctor Strange, it became Doctor Mordred. Now, there was a time when Doctor Strange was not the well-known character that he is now. Uh, before he turned up in the MCU, I think beyond hardcore comic fans, most people wouldn't be familiar with him in any way. He turned up in some animated stuff, I think, back in the day, but it wasn't a popular character. And then thanks to Benedict Cumberbatch perfectly bringing that character to the screen in the first Doctor Strange and then in Infinity War and Endgame and his bit in Thor Ragnarok, he's much more of a household name now. So nowadays, it's easier to pick out the similarities compared to back then, where the average fan might have just picked the movie up and gone, oh, cool. And maybe a parent would have said, I think I know, what is this Doctor Strange? So at the time, though, it wasn't as obvious. Today, the parallels are so delightful. And it's one of the things that makes this movie so much fun, is picking out those similarities and seeing where they ran with it, and where they were able to go within their limits. So, just as a quick breakdown, how does Doctor Strange parallel with Doctor Mordred? They both live in New York apartments, or New York buildings filled with books, antiques, assorted magical bric-a-brac. Here in Doctor Mordred, it's just the building that he lives in and owns. It's actually just a room in a hallway, there's not even any establishing shots. And Doctor Strange, it's the Sanctum Sanctorum. Uh, They both wear medallions around their neck, uh, the Eye of Agamotto for Doctor Strange and the where he keeps the time stone. And here, just a medallion that kind of pauses time, but the amount of time it pauses is never really consistent, which is a cheer delight. Uh, the costume choice is pretty obvious. He's wearing, Doctor Mordred's wearing silk pajamas and a cape, and... Doctor Strange wears a much classier costume with a cape. Uh, they both practice magic, they battle sorcerers, can travel between worlds and dimensions. It's it's all there, and I think if, if somebody tried to make a movie like this now, there would obviously be more of a stink kicked up, because it's so obvious what they're doing. But by trying to still you know, take that, fuck it, we'll, you know, let's put on a show, we'll do it ourselves approach we get this wonderful little weird time capsule. And 
it's like a lot of full moon movies. It's a bare bones production. But at this point, they still had the Paramount money coming in. So it's bare bones, but like all the great early full moon movies, it's trying to be top shelf. Now, thankfully, uh, Albert Band uh, was a co-director on this movie. Uh, he had directed, uh, well, he hasn't had his own career uh, as a filmmaker, but he had directed uh, films like Ghoulies 2, uh, one of my favorite Empire Pictures. He, he directed that and several others. Uh, he co-directed this with his son, with Charlie Band. Now, Charlie Band is a lot of things. Uh, a skilled director is not one of them, despite the fact that he's a very prolific director. Um, so it's nice to have that kind of stability that someone like Albert Band brings this production where it it looks and feels and behaves like a movie. Uh, I'm looking at you, Trancers 2, where most of that movie is a series of wonderful close-ups. The conversations all seem to be just shot in close-ups, uh, single shots of each character, and he just cuts in circles between them. Uh, if you if you don't know what I mean, check out Transfers 2 and uh, and keep an eye out for that. Will I, uh, will I drink my tea very uh, <laughs> oddly sanctimoniously? Mm. Tea. So, as I said, this was part of this early burst of Full Moon Pictures, so there is still some budget, there, and they're trying to put as much zazz into this movie as they can. Uh, there's the, the floating prison. Now, speaking of the floating prison, I know, or I've read, I should say I don't know specifically, but I've read that part sequence of this of this movie were repurposed from an Empire picture that hadn't gone forward. So I don't know what that is. Maybe that's the floating prison, whatever. I'm not sure. But that set's delightful. It's got a great 80s kind of weird, early 90s, 80s weird feel to it. The uh, dinosaur bone fight. Uh, another great example of David Allen just crushing it. Uh, David Allen did a ton of work in the early days of Full Moon with them doing stop motion animation. Uh, the famously the puppets in the first few Puppet Master movies. The stop motion was him, and he did tons of stuff from at Empire and at Full Moon. And his work's always delightful. And that T Rex versus the Woolly Mammoth uh, skeleton fight is is just great. So there are there are moments here that that it really does try to up its game. And it's, it has, on top of those, it has a lot of the things that made Full Moon fun. There's a great sense of ambition, a great laissez-faire attitude to this air, where it's just like, fuck it, we're going to go and make a movie. And we know what we're doing, we know our game, and we're just going to go play that. You know, and then there's the stuff like disjointed storytelling where the rules of the magic and all that stuff kind of change from sequence to sequence. There's the cheesy effects, the melodramatic performances, and I, I know that sounds like a criticism, but these are the elements that gave that era of Full Moon its, its own unique feel. You can look at that period of time with those productions, and in a lot of cases, you can put the movies on, and they feel like full moon movies. There's a wonderful sense of, of unreality to them, where they're kind of happening in their own world. It's like going back and looking at the, 
the Philippine shot era of the Roger Corman movies, where they all kind of look like they were made in a different world, and they all share a very similar visual aesthetic. The The Full Moon movies from this period were, were the same. So that's that's part of the reason we love them, is because they're they're a little goofy, they're a little cheesy, they're, they're not something that's meant to be taken overly seriously. Like, you're not going to be sitting down and you know, trying to do hardcore film analysis on this stuff. But that's not, again, that's also not a criticism. Not every movie you're meant to do that with. Sometimes movies are just a fucking blast. And when Full Moon was on their game, they made, for one studio, probably made more delightful movies than most. So that that kind of technical goofy fun of the film aside, the movie works because of Jeffrey Combs. Now, he it doesn't really matter the movie that he's in. He's been in plenty of films that have sucked around him, and he's still great because he always brings his A-game to it. And one of the fun things about Dr. Mordred, despite its outlandish subject matter, is it's a, a rare restrained performance for him where his face is, is uncovered. Uh, I would say something like on uh, Deep Space Nine. His character, Wei-Yoon, is a, is a restrained performance, but he's under makeup. Here, it's just, look, it's Jeffrey Combs. Look, it's, it's Herbert West. It's, it's, it's all these great characters, but he's very reserved, and he's just giving it hell. He's trying to imbue this character with a real sense of seriousness, that this is a hundred-plus-year-old person living alone with all this knowledge and foreboding, and he's trying so hard to to give it a sense of, of gravitas. And he does. It's It really doesn't matter what you give him to do. He will always excel. Now, he's kind of known for his more jittery, manic performances, like, like I said, Reanimator from Beyond, uh, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, where he's really kind of squirrely and over the top. But it, it's great to see him here like I said, kind of quiet, kind of understated, never acting down to the material. One of those great actors that because he did a lot of work with Full Moon and in low-budget horror and just low-budget filmmaking in general, you would never see a performance where it ever looked like he was phoning it in. It never happened. And even his his nemesis in the film, Brian Thompson or something I think his name is, but I could be completely wrong. He's been in so much stuff. And another one of those great B-movie actors that just always shows up, does an awesome job playing just a wonderfully over-the-top bad guy, getting to do all the bad guy lines and all the spells and silliness. So always a delight. It's it's a film that is easy to overlook. I I overlooked it for years. I bought it just because, oh, it's full moon, got to get this in my collection. But, you know, the best of us can be capable of kind of snap judgments on movies where, because I knew, I had heard that it was a, a Doctor Strange ripoff, so I was like, ah, fuck that. I watched it once, left alone for a lot of years. But it's one of those movies that each time you kind of come back to it, you get a little more fun out of it. With full moon movies, for me, if I'm going to watch one, it's usually Doll Man or Demonic Toys. Especially Doll Man versus Demonic Toys might be hands down my favorite full moon movie. But they made so many good ones, it's hard to tell. But with Doctor Strange, it, or Doctor, see, damn it. With Doctor Mordred, I didn't come back to it a lot. 
But there's so much weirdness in this film because it is such a, a mishmash of, of original elements and co-opted story elements, you know, where he's just sitting in this room with his giant bank of TVs and he's cataloging, he's taping news reports. He was writing on a VHS tape, you know, crime report, 3.20 a.m., Israeli conflict. Like, you're a wizard, you're an all-powerful sorcerer that can cross dimensions and you're taping the nightly news for... <laughs> come back to later just in case that's great because it's just there and it's very serious like yes of course i'm keeping these records it's just great you know it's it's not the best full moon movie ever but because of its connection to to marvel and to doctor strange and especially now that the character is so popular and such an integral piece of the mcu it's I hope it's something that more people come back to and kind of, you know, as as a as a time capsule of a, a different era of cinema, different era of filmmaking. And maybe because Sam Raimi's involved with Doctor Strange 2 now, which I'm not overly excited about, but whatever, I have faith in in Marvel. Can we please get a Dr. Mordred cameo in that movie because it's in the multiverse of madness? We're going to be jumping between universes and worlds within the multiverse. Can we even just get a quick shot of he opens a and steps into another world and there's an old Jeffrey Combs in the outfit and they kind of just look up and down at each other and he bounces back into the rest of the movie. Now, that might be more of a Deadpool thing, but that would be fucking hilarious. Can can we get everybody behind this? Get If there's ever been a letter-writing campaign to a studio that's been justified, you know, I would say it's this. Let's get Jeffrey Combs and Dr. Mordred into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It would be absolutely fucking hilarious. Because you'd be in the theater, or at least I would be, and you'd be watching it, and you'd hear like two people go, ah, they got it, and the rest would be like, what the hell is this that they spent time and energy on? You know, you don't have to shoot Benedict Cumberbatch with him, just shoot him looking up and down and weird on a green screen, and then get Combs in later. Now, I'm sure Charlie Band would make their life a living nightmare to try and get the rights to these things, but a man can dream. It's all we can do. We live, cinema is the world of dreams, so maybe, who knows? But check it out. Check out Doctor Strange. Oh, fuck, I did it again! When I go back and edit this, I'm going to have to count how many times I completely fumbled the names of these movies. But check out Dr. Mordred. It's on Tubi, so you can watch it for free if you don't mind watching a few commercials. It's worth checking out. It's strange. you know, And it's delightful, because it's crossing between this weird fantasy film, this silly little police procedural movie that's happening, where all the cops are just, you know, gum-chewing, shoot at anything that moves cops. You know, it's supposed to be in New York, but it's so obviously shot in L.A., it's just, it's a great, it's a great time. You will, you will have, it's an hour and 14 minutes. Like, you don't have an hour and 14 minutes to spare? Like, come on, give me a break. Everyone's got an hour and 14 minutes these days. I guarantee you. Unless you're a frontline worker and out there actually being a real hero, you've got an hour and 14 minutes. Trust me. Okay, now on to the other odd duck. <laughs> I'm so funny, it's painful. I'm glad I'm in here by myself. Otherwise, if if you heard that joke in person, not protected by technology and the internet, your head might have actually exploded. So I'm glad that I'm glad everyone's okay and safe and sound here. So second movie, this one, this is this is this is a big one. So this is 1986 Howard the Duck, directed by Willard. I want to say Hayek, but I think it's Hiyuk. Kind of hoping it's Hiyuk. 
A sarcastic humanoid uh, duck is pulled from his homeworld to Earth, where he must stop a hellish alien invasion with the help of a nerdy scientist and a cute, struggling female rock singer who fancies him. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, cards on the table. I, I have never read a Howard the Duck comic book. I do not know how close it is to the source material, so I won't be judging it or t- discussing it in that way at all. I know the movie deviates in a lot of ways, but I can't look at it from that perspective. And it's also a movie I saw relatively late. I didn't see it until, fuck, maybe five or six years ago. It was a movie that I knew about, but I had never seen it. So I get there's, I know for a lot of people it was a nostalgic childhood movie, and I completely understand that. If I had have seen this movie as a kid, it would have been, it would have blown my fucking mind. It would have been absolutely amazing. So Howard the Duck is one of those rare, big budget, what the fuck movies. It's easy to look back and say, how the hell did this get made? And I know there's lots of people out there that have done that and, and maybe a little bit better than me. Who knows? Hard to say. But it's completely what the fuck. How the hell did this movie get made on this scale? But when the answer to that is very simple and it's George Lucas. When you have somebody like him backing it at that time, no studio is going to say no to one of his projects. So... It's often cited as one of the worst movies ever made, one of the worst comic book movies ever made, and one of the biggest flops in movie history. Not just in terms of the critical drubbing that it took, and it did, but a financial loss. And it was a big loss for for George Lucas and Lucasfilm. In fact, it led to the beginning of starting to have to sell off assets. Uh, it led to the selling the initial push inside the company that they, when they sold off the Pixar computer, so it it was a big deal when this movie flopped. So because not only for the the financial losses, but George Lucas was treated like a genius, and he was treated that way for a very long time. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. So it's not surprising that there was kind of this insulated air around him. You know, American Graffiti, Star Wars trilogy, Indiana Jones trilogy, Willow, Labyrinth, even the Ewok movies made money. Now, I've talked about before, um, I talked about this on A Frame Apart, where we all should not have been surprised that episode one was bad. There had been clues for years that George, there might, George might not be the golden cinema god that everyone had made him out to be. But it's that level of hubris that led to a film like Howard the Duck, a jewel like this being gifted to the world. A golden egg, as it will. <laughs> so, today, because I have the DVD, the special edition they put out, it's pretty wild that they market this as a family film. It even says so right on the friggin' DVD case, you know, a, a fun hidden gem for the whole family. No way. Not at all. This movie is not for, well, it's totally for young kids because it's the kind of movie you want to see as, a, you know, an eight, nine-year-old kid. But you so totally shouldn't show them this movie. You know, given that just like the opening scene, you know, opening scenes, there's uh, nudity most foul. Get it? Uh, drinking, smoking, sexually suggestive phone calls, sexy postcards, two punk rockers try and rape Marty McFly's mom. That's fucking crazy. This is all in like the opening 10 minutes of this family film. Oh, and, and how we cannot forget. We cannot forget that even when it calms down for a second, Howard has to go out and get a job. So where do they send him to work? At a fucking rub and tug, a hot tub club. 
Like, are you kidding me? Like, and there's side boob everywhere and people screwing around and banging. It's, you know, and Howard almost gets freaky with Leah Thompson. And that scene is hilarious because he panics and then gets a duck boner when his feathers come up on the top of his head. Is Yeah, this is a family movie of the highest order. They don't make family movies like this. But it's it's a movie that, and there's lots of them out there that, it failed for a lot of reasons, but it's one of those films that it didn't know who it was making the movie for. It was too toned down to please either the audience of the comics or an adult audience, and it was too rough and suggestive to please a family audience. So who are you selling the movie to? You're left with this middle ground of kids seeing movies and they're not supposed to and weirdos <laughs> that would go and see something like Howard the Duck. So speaking of Leah Thompson, I do want to take a second to kind of celebrate her bad movie legacy earlier in her career because she made some excellent bad movies. And even if she hadn't have been in Back to the Future, because obviously that that's her big her big thing and her involvement with the Brat Pack. But I still think she would have had a, a bad movie legacy that is, is pretty unrivaled for a major actress. You know, she was in three of the best ones ever made, uh, Jaws 3D, Red Dawn and Howard the Duck. These are top shelf bad movies. So thank you, Leah Thompson, your early career for your agent making excellent, excellent decisions. And I mean that in all sincerity, she's great in all those movies and especially here because she's so wonderfully over the top and completely committed to this kind of bouncy, silly, naive, fun performance that she gives. And she never lets it drop for a second. Now, for all of its weirdness and for all of its legacy is such a terrible movie and one of the biggest flops of all time, Golden Turkey Winners, the list of worst films ever made. It can't go into that bad category because it never commits the one major movie sin. And it's a sin I've talked about before on the show. It's never dull. It bounces from one crazy outlandish set piece to the next. It's the first half of the movie almost plays like a series of sketches. And it's pretty, it's a pretty straightforward fish out of water, duck out of water. Huh, I can't. Whoa. These duck puns are getting out of control. I, sh- I should calm down. I should probably go take a swim in some cold water, cool my feathers a little bit. There, oh, shit, there it was again. So it's pretty straightforward for the first third or two thirds. And then it kind of goes into this crazy comic book mode where Howard all of a sudden has to battle this intergalactic bad guy. And it, it kind of feels like two different movies, kind of like uh, From Dust Till Dawn. Even though both halves of that movie are awesome, but there are people that like one half over the other half. Personally, I like the first half of this movie better, where Howard's just kind of running around trying to fit into society. I'm sure he got up to some craziness in the comic books, having to fight a villain, and I guess this was their attempt to make it kind of a big, weird effects movie, George Lucas extravaganza, but personally, I like the first half way better. I think the performances are wackier, wilder, and more fun, but it doesn't matter. The whole movie is is a delight. And it's also delightfully 1980s. If you want, if you had somebody, a time traveler or somebody that had been living under a rock and did not know what the 1980s was, you could just show them Howard the Duck. It is such a perfect 80s time capsule. You know, in terms of the effects, there's that great blue lightning that arcs all over the place. 
the lasers, the the dark overlord of the universe, that weird tentacle that comes out of his mouth, his makeup, even his monster form, his final alien form, which is wonderful stop motion, even though it looks like a rejected design for the Rancor from Return of the Jedi. You know, even the, the costumes and the hair are so 1980s to almost be considered a special effect unto themselves. They're just absolutely wacky. And we have to take a second to talk about, obviously, Howard himself. Now, like I get it, it's a guy in a suit and puppets and stuff, but the puppets and the suits are handled so well. And the the guy doing the puppeteer work, or the primary puppeteer, was also, the, I think his name is Tim Pope, I might be wrong. He was the primary puppeteer, and if I'm not mistaken, the voice on uh, Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi. So he was a... A stalwart, uh, you know, an in-house guy at Industrial Light and Magic. And then in the suit was a lot of different people between the stuntman and stuff, but it was primarily one actor who, who wore the suit, and that's Ed Gale. Now, Ed Gale was also, for hardcore horror fans, he was the primary suit performer of the Lurkers in Phantasm Two. So they had started out with a kid, but things weren't matching, and so... Ed started doing most, he did most of the in-suit work in the movie. And he brings a great sense of character to the physical performance. And then the voice of Howard. There's just something so dry and sarcastic and charming and a little sleazy in kind of a non-threatening way that he's the primary, one of the primary reasons the film works, even though it's such an amalgam of all these different performers. You, we want to see him save the day as goofy and as over the top as and ill advises a lot of shit in the film is whenever Howard's on screen, whether it's the puppet or whether it's the suit, you're engaged in the film. Even when the lines get silly, especially the bad guy, oh my god, it's just, like, they got a book of, you know, like, the worst one-liners a bad guy could say. Like, I kept waiting for him to say, like, that'll leave a mark, you know, or oops, did I do that, or something. If if Family Matters had been on the air when this movie came out, he would have, at one point, said, did I do that? Like, he would have quoted Urkel. But you're, we're with Howard. You know, we want to see him save the day. We want to see him get the girl, despite the fact that he's a duck and she's a lady. Like, we, we want to see him, you know, get home back to his weird duck planet. It's, there's a real weird connection. And I think that's beyond the film's silliness and a lot of its ill-advised decisions. It's this, I think, this connection to Howard that has kept the movie going and in such a big way, because it is, it's one of those cult films that's big. You know, you don't get a, a big DVD re-release like this that's not on kind of a niche label if there's not a market for it out there. Now, sure, I paid $5 for this DVD, whatever. But all of these strange elements come together to make, like I said, kind of a what the fuck movie. You know, Tim Robbins is so insanely over the top. Performance of the bad guys. All of the background actors dealing, well, he's a duck, and people just accepting it, hissing at the school kids, you know? And then we can't forget the sex scene. It's ridiculous. You know, so many strange decisions had to happen for this movie to get made, you know, from the scripting to the shooting to the editing room to post-production, all this stuff. So many adults, (laughs) 
people that had made films, people that George Lucas had made some of the biggest movies of all time at this point. And all of these people had to agree that this was the exact right decision or the series of decisions that needed to be made so we could have Howard the Duck as we know and love him today. You know, and the weirdness didn't just stop in front of the camera, you know, behind the camera, the musical director for the movie is Thomas Dolby, you know, blinded me with science, you know, that great bet Howard the Duck song that they're singing at the end. It's so self-referential, you know, with back to the future nod. And there's nods like that all over the film. There's tons of references to Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Lots of Lucasfilm properties, you know. He didn't want to have to spend any extra money on all that stuff. Or, you know, didn't want to have to just call up a buddy and go, hey, can I put in this reference? Oh, yeah, George, you go over there and you'll be a genius. So it's just great. It's with a lot of movies like this that are considered crap or flops or, like, huge duds. In a lot of cases or in most cases, you can go back to them and there's usually something in joyous to be found in them because like there are movies out there that are just plain fucking terrible and they fall apart and they're big flops famously uh Micho black 100 million dollar disaster now but that movie commits the sin it's boring a lot of these movies that end up on the worst of list or worst films ever made most of those are I will bet money are probably very entertaining if you'd go back and watch them with the right set of eyes and it's also important to remember that the movies that you don't like or you hate, which is so, so stupid for people to say that, but the movie that you can't stand to watch or think is dumb is somebody's favorite movie, and it changed their life in a weird way. There's people out there that Howard the Duck was an amazing time when they saw it in theaters, and it stuck with them and become kind of this anchor in a way films like The Goonies or Back to the Future or Star Wars have stuck with people. And there's no shame in that, because it's endlessly fucking entertaining. If the movie wasn't entertaining, and it didn't have its own sense of of bent charm and hilarity, we still wouldn't be talking about it, or at least talking about it on the scale that it still gets discussed today. You know, it would be a niche little one-off. You might see it pop up on riff tracks, or the actors that were in it might have done a little tiny convention appearance once in a while. Now, that's just not the world we live in. With movies like this that survive, there's got to be something about them that that makes it memorable. And trust me, Howard the Duck is filled with oodles, <laughs> tons and tons of moments. There's a flock of moments, you could say, in this movie that, that make it worthwhile. Check it out. It is not, it's not the MCU. It's not even the DCU by far. And it's not the, the Howard the Duck from the comic. And it's not the Howard the Duck that's popped up in the MCU. He's had three cameos now. The end of the first Guardians and the second Guardians, and he shows up at the final battle in Endgame. He comes in with all the Ravagers, even though it's just like a blink and you miss it cameo. Uh, he's now voiced by Seth Green in the in these new movies. But and if he if they make a movie of him or an animated something, cool, great. But this will always kind of be there waiting, you know, for people that want to go down that go down that that dark, goofy you know, in quotes, failed comic book, you know, the, the hallowed alleyway of, of the dreaded other comic book movies. So check it out. Deep Space Nine, season one comes to a close. 
with episode 19. Yes, it was a short season. They only did 19 episodes. The rest of the series would get the full run, 24, 25 episodes. But this one was shorter. So we are at the end of season one with the episode In the Hands of the Prophets, which aired June 20th, 1993. Vedic Wynn, a candidate in the race for the open Kai position, stirs up trouble on Deep Space Nine when she attempts to boycott Keiko's school for not teaching Bajoran religious beliefs. So... If you remember from earlier in the season, uh, we had met a uh, Kyle Paca, who was the head of the of the Bajoran religious order. She was kind of their pope, and she was a, a wonderful leader. But she stayed behind in the in the Gamma Quadrant to help those people that had had the robot implants, where they kept killing each other and over and over again. So the position is open, and now we're getting into the race for that position to start to be filled. Now, this the season finale does a lot of firsts for Deep Space Nine, and it introduces three big elements that would become integral to the show as they went on. First, it introduces Vedic Barile, and it introduces Vedic Win. Oh, Win. And it also introduces, really, just how tangled Bajoran religion, their religion and political systems are. Just like religion and politics is still tangled in so many countries around the world today. Here it's very, very tangled up. Now, Vedic Burial would, he would be in the show for a few seasons and provide a, a great, you know, one side of the argument, you know, peace, love and understanding. And then there's fucking Vedic Wynn. And she's played so wonderfully by Nurse Ratchet. And she is just, oh my God. Her character it wonderfully expands over the course of the series and becomes more integral to the intrigue in the series. But fuck, she just plays her such a bitch. Every time you see Vedic win, uh, and then soon to be Kai win on the show, you just want to fucking choke the life out of her because she is just one of these evil right-winger people out there. Just evil people in general. It doesn't even matter the wing you're on, even though she is from a, a, a hard orthodox right-wing religious order. But she just does it so perfectly. And we see people like this all the time on television, running their mouths, where they have no qualms manipulating people's faith for their own power. And it's not even money with when it's power and control. And she's just despicable. And I hate her and I want to choke her out. But this this is DS9's, you know, their Scopes trial episode. You know, the famous, it's the Inherit the Wind, you know. Uh, man didn't come from no monkey. You know, it's religion v. science. And just like dealing with these issues in real life, it's incredibly frustrating to have to try and reason with people or even have a discussion with people that don't realize why these things are separate and why they can't, you can't use religion to silence science and all this crap. But the, the difference here, and it's an interesting position, is the the wormhole aliens the these entities that live inside the wormhole and had built it and that they've had contact with these are the aliens that the bajorans have built their faith around their prophets these are their gods and the wormhole aliens have presented themselves to the bajorans in that way for tens of thousands of years and have encouraged them to develop a religion and have spoken to them and shown them signs. They're very real. These are tangible gods to them. 
And they're also, so their faith has been so central to their society, but also coming out of the 50 years of the Cardassian occupation, it was their faith that got them through it and kept them unified as a people. So you have such a galvanized ideology at the center of an entire population of the whole planet. And you have proof that the gods you're worshiping are still talking to you. There's the orbs that they send and you can go and look at them and you have visions and there's prophecies that come true. It's, it's not like, you know, on earth where people are looking at 2000 year old books that were written by committee over a thousand years and shooting their neighbors because of it, you know, where there's no proof never was. It's just power struggle. The Bajorans actually have proof. So when the Federation comes in and go finds the wormhole, their celestial temple in quotes, and to them, it's science. You know, these are nonlinear aliens from another dimension. They live in this wormhole. They, everything they're doing, how the wormhole was built, how it's maintained, how they interact with our world, our universe can be can be measured and quantified, can be put through the scientific rigors so we have actual proof of what these things are. But to the Bajorans, to a lot of them, it doesn't matter. These you can call it whatever you want. These are gods. And I don't know which author it was that said it, but any sufficiently advanced technology would appear as magic. So a sufficiently advanced species like the wormhole aliens would of course look like gods. So what happens here is Keiko, O'Brien's wonderful wife, is has opened a school on Deep Space Nine and is teaching about the wormhole as science. You know, she ex- is explaining how it's built, how it works, the science behind the whole thing. You know, she is not teaching about faith. And she's not telling them that they're wrong. She said the, they, these, this thing is viewed as a religious symbol by the Bajorans, but here's the scientific evidence for what it all is. And... Kai Wynn doesn't like that. Sorry, Vedic Wynn at this point doesn't like that, of course. Because it's it's that age-old argument, you know. Don't keep evolution out of my schools. You know, Earth's 5,000 years old. It's hard not to slip into a southern accent when you talk about this kind of crap. It's, it's shit that pops up all the time, and it's just power and control. It's using people's faith to blind them and then taking the information away when they're not looking so they have nothing else to go to but this blind faith. And this kind of stuff is what DS9 does best. And it's something that you could only it could only get away with on DS9 because the issues are so intrinsic to the characters in the ongoing story. And they don't settle for for easy answers. Because up until this point, the Bajorans have been presented as innocent victims of the Cardassians. Like I said, the the parallels between what happened to the Bajorans during the occupation and the the Jews in the Holocaust, that's not subtle. It's all very there. So they've been presented as as victims, as people that have been wronged. But over the course of this first season, they've started to get little hints that they're not perfect. And they're not completely innocent. Now, obviously what happened to them was through no fault of their own, and none of that is ever drawn into question, which is wonderful. But this episode paints them not in a negative light. It paints them in a more complex light. Because Deep Space Nine chose to tackle religion, 
and in a way that none of the other series ever did. That was all left very much alone. There's elements of spirituality in other characters, you know, like Spock and that kind of, or Chakotay on Voyager. But never real organized religion and how it impacts a culture and it impacts their political system. And Deep Space Nine from this point on is going to dive headfirst into that and how how faith can become toxic, how blind faith, I should say, can become toxic when you refuse to accept new ideas and you let it stand in your way, uh, stand in the way of peace and acceptance and understanding and going out and joining the world or the galaxy or the quadrant, I should say, in this case. And it's an excellent episode. It's O'Brien heavy. You know, all this political stuff is going on as O'Brien's doing a kind of a, you know, I have to track down the thing before the thing goes wrong with the thing kind of a, kind of a thing. You know the one. You know that thing. And it's it's just great because it's it ends the series, or ends the season, I should say, not the series. But it makes a very firm commitment to the viewers that this is what the show is going to be. This is what it is capable of. And these are the places we're going to go with it. So I can understand why, because it's so heavy, people weren't digging it. And why a lot of people would have dropped out, you know, like we gave it a season. This just, this is not my track. I don't want this, but it just opens up the world and the possibilities of storytelling in the Star Trek universe. It's it's great. It's excellent. And I cannot wait to start season two because season two is when things we start to get hints that the show is going to blow up and expand in a very big way, starting with season three. So, yeah, episode 20 of the Steal My Name podcast. We'll start with episode one of season two. Very exciting. I hope you guys have enjoyed this the start this rewatch that I've been doing. I know not everyone is a big DS9 fan, especially if you're coming, you know, just for the movies or the little book talk at the end that I do. I hope throughout the course of this, maybe you've been inspired to go back and and rewatch it, give it a second chance. You know, I hope I've convinced you, pushed you in that direction of uh, of giving the show a look. I know there's been there's probably more misses than hits in this first season, but I think there's been enough good episodes now that maybe you can, if you were on the fence, you can start to see why I'm so passionate about this and why I'm dedicating so much of the show uh, up until now and going forward to celebrating DS9. So, great. Books! So, well, May is Superhero Movie Month for movies for the show. Uh, in my personal life, uh, I've decided to make May uh, a Stephen King book month. I'm a monster Stephen King fan. Up until this point, I think I read 42 of his books, uh, novels, short fiction, novella collections, and nonfiction all combined. I have a whole shelf in the other room dedicated to him. But I've been collecting everything, all of his books that I've read, but I also, as I find them, I grab his books, the ones that I don't have so that I have them for a rainy day. And I figure, hey... This is one big rainy, however many several months we'll be doing this. And I've got the time to tackle these because a lot of them are longer books. So fuck it. It's going to be a Stephen King month for me of just reading nothing but King all month. So the first book that I read 
because uh, I'm trying to go in semi-chronological order through his novels, his novellas uh, collections, and his short story collections, is his 1987 book, The Tommyknockers. Now, this book was written at the height of King's drug problem. In fact, it was, it was the last book that he wrote before he cleaned up. And it shows. <laughs> you know, if Maximum Overdrive was cocaine the movie, this book is cocaine the book. And, oh my God, it was a very difficult read because of that. But it also reads as one big giant cry for help. The whole book is an allegory about drug and alcohol abuse. You know, the basic plot of the Tommyknockers is a woman unearths a UFO in the woods, and as she starts to dig it up, it starts to influence the people in the nearby town of Haven. But the effects and the impact it has is really all just an allegory for drugs and alcohol. You know, as you're exposed to this, you start to think you have all these brilliant ideas and you can do anything and build anything. And every idea you have is fucking genius. And who cares if you're constantly bleeding out of various holes? It doesn't matter. You're on, you're such a rush with your whole life and you can stay up for days on end. You don't need to eat any of this stuff. It's drugs. It's, and you have to you have to keep going. You have to see more and more and more and more of it. As he's digging up the ship, you just it's just getting deeper and deeper into your drug habit. Now, during King's drug period, he was known for his tendency to kind of go off on tangents in his books and get kind of manic. Uh, it, I'm looking at you, primarily in terms of tangents, but here it's really taken. To an extreme. The first third of this book, when compared to King's usual prose style, which is usually very smooth and easy to read, it this is really tricky because the first third, when we're following basically just two main characters, uh, Bobby Anderson and Jim Gardner, guard, it's so fucking manic. And I can just see him because he's talked about it, you know, sitting at the computer and the typewriter with his nose stuffed full of Kleenex because. He's bleeding everywhere from a Coke, you know, drunk as shit, just frantically typing whatever came into his fucking head. And it reads like that. It's completely out of control. The the prose style is, is chunky. It's hard to follow. It's fucking manic. Manic is the only way to describe it. And then once I felt like once I kind of finally had a hold on this wacky prose style, he just kind of jams the break on this plot line that he's these two plot lines that he's been following when he finally gets these characters together and completely veers away from them for three, four, five hundred pages almost and just starts to focus on the townspeople of Haven. Now, while this this section is a little easier to follow, it reads more classic King is he's kind of telling almost a series of individual novellas in some cases. These are quite long sections where he focuses on characters that some of them we've heard it referenced and some of them not at all. It's easier to read in those sections, but it completely brings the rhythm of the book to a halt and it kind of descends into a muddled mess. Now, 
multiple viewpoints like this is not something new to King. Uh, he completely knocked it out of the park with a book like The Stand, where you know, like now parts of that book are slightly overwritten. We didn't need as much weird details we got, but he balances it quite well. This multiple viewpoint of a of a town going to shit is a style that he would revisit in a few years with his head clear with something like Needful Things. And he would be much more successful there. Now, while there are parts of the book that are that are interesting and read like Classic King, overall it's a complete mess. And even in later years when he got cleaned up, even he said that it's a mess, that it's kind of the worst book that came out of that period. Considering how long that drug and alcohol period was for him, it's amazing that more things didn't get derailed because he wrote some incredible books during that time, some of his best books during that period. But here it's just, it's a mess. And by this point in his career, no one was really editing King other than for like structure and stuff. You know, maybe grammar and spelling, but that's probably it. You know, when King submitted the book, they published it because it would sell. It didn't matter what was in it. And this was kind of a testament of that, that it didn't matter how muddled and fucked up the book was. It'd be like, oh, another genius hitter from Stephen King. The real fun of this book, though, is picking out the King Easter eggs. And they're plentiful. I think because he's known for an interconnectivity to his books. A lot of his books, um, in some cases, you could say a majority, tie into primarily the Dark Tower series, and you get little references. But also there's the books that happen in and around Derry. There's the Castle Rock books. Because these books, so many of them are happening in this one area of Maine, or even just Maine, Connecticut, New England in general, there's chances for him to kind of throw one-off references to other stories. And in some cases, it might be as simple as, you know, in a book, he might reference Shawshank Prison or, you know, a little one-off line to another story or say, you know, like, oh, you know, you go 50 miles down the road and you'll go past, you know, Castle Rock or Jerusalem's Lot or something like that. Here, though, I don't know if it was because of the cocaine, but he really goes into overdrive with the references and the Easter eggs. So that was the fun part of this book. So the ones I picked out were the connections to the Dark Tower. He references the idea of Ka. Uh, He references heavily the Dead Zone uh, quite a bit. Uh, Firestarter, and specifically with those two, the organization The Shop, so, because I figured, okay, maybe he'll bring up the shop because that happened in a, in books in this era. But no, he he flat out says, you know, describes the plot of Firestarter, describes characters from the Dead Zone. Uh, it he references quite heavily. Now, Derry is near Haven, so that's going to come up. But he flat out makes references to Pennywise appearing to characters in this book. Uh, Pet Cemetery, uh, he references, and The Mist. Now, The Mist one is a little quieter. He references Project Arrowhead, where if I'm not mistaken, that, mistaken that's the, the organization or the military project that let loose the monsters in The Mist. So those, those are the fun parts. 
there there are some neat moments, you know, as the people start to turn into into the Tommyknockers and their bodies are taken over. There are some genuinely creepy sequences. The the final confrontation is classic King. You know, the hero keeps getting more and more beat up and broken and shot up. And is he going to get away? Is he going to get around the corner? You know, telling, using uh, out-of-sequence storytelling to ramp up suspense. You know, all those elements are there. But because he was so fucking coked out of his mind, they're just kind of thrown at the wall. And, you know, he was just kind of hoping everything would stick. So it's... I can't recommend it for casual readers. I would never recommend it for us as a starting point for King because it'll turn you right off of his work. But if you are a King completionist or a King aficionado, if you've read a lot of his work and just want to read it all, that's when I would suggest the Tommy Knockers <laughs> is if you're in a position like I am and you're going through you know, if you've read more than a half to, you know, three quarters of his body of work and you're starting to pick up the other ones now, what's left, then I would suggest checking it out. That's pretty much the only reason I got to it this time. And I got to the point where I just had to sit down and go, I'm so done with this book and just read like 300 plus pages in like a day. So I got to get through it. I can get through it. I can't do it anymore. There's better books I want to read. I just, I finished that, put it down, opened up Hearts in Atlantis and it was just like going to another world. It's like, oh, there's Stephen King. You know, when his prose is so beautiful and wonderful and clear that you can actually hear him reading it. That's when you know King's on fire. So check it out, maybe, if you're hardcore. If not, there's better King books out there. So, recommendations. Uh, for movies, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, for Do- uh, Doctor Strange, check it out. It's a great movie. It's a bit more of a low-key Marvel movie compared to some of the others, but uh, Benedict Cumberbatch does a great job. Uh, the final, the effects in the movie are great. Uh, the weird kind of disjointed take on reality uh, is is wonderful. It's a great movie. I also recommend Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, I think Buckaroo Banzai and Battle Across the Eighth Dimension. The reason I recommend it is it shares kind of a weird connection in terms of its kind of off-the-wall tone with Howard the Duck. I think those two movies would make a great double bill because they're these weird kind of comic bookish characters that have a very 80s off-kilter aesthetic to what they do. The humor's strange. The world is strange. It's another one of those what-the-fuck movies. So, yes, Doctor Strange and Buckaroo Bonsai. For books, if you like... King books where he's dealing with a town going to shit, a multiple viewpoint book, I recommend Under the Dome. Uh, I know I talked about Needful Things earlier. Uh, While it is a good book, it's not one of my favorites of King. I find it a little laggy in some points, but Under the Dome is a fucking rip. Uh, He's even said, my goal with this book was to put the pedal to the floor uh, soon at the start and just go right to the end, and he does. That book never lets up. And it's multiple viewpoints, hard interconnectivity between characters, and the repercussions of small town life and secrets as when you start to put things under pressure. You put these people under pressure. So, great book. Next week, episode 20. Can you believe it? Obviously, you can because this is episode 19. So, because of uh, this whole COVID man uh, thing... Episode 20, as originally planned, cannot happen. 
Uh, originally, I had intended to look at uh, Bubba Hotep and have my mom guest on the show with me because it's about seniors and all that stuff, and she works in long-term care, and also because it's her birthday uh, next Saturday on May 16th. But that obviously cannot happen. So I am going to be looking at, for episode 20, because it's comic book month, Avengers Endgame. When I was doing... Uh, the last year of A Frame Apart. I think it was the last year, yeah, of A Frame Apart. Uh, leading up to Avengers Infinity War, uh, we had done this huge, a whole month of Marvel, where we had rewatched all the phases of Marvel in anticipation of the release of Infinity War. And had done a big review about that movie. Uh, but never, there were plans to come back around when Endgame and the other movies came out, but the show ended before that. So I... I have been able to talk about it. So I thought I would take this opportunity to unpack the the end of the Infinity Saga and talk about just how fucking monumental and insane this last movie is. So that's what episode 20 is going to be, Avengers Endgame. Whew. Until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Please like, subscribe, follow, share tell a friend. Every little bit helps, and I really do appreciate it. Uh, I know you could go anywhere for your comfort right now, literally anywhere, to uh, to burn up some time uh, to try to pass the day. So those of you that have joined me for these shows, it really does mean the world to me. This is one of the things that is keeping me sane through this whole process, because uh, like a lot of other people uh, that are stuck at home or even the ones that are still at work, frontline workers, a lot of people are struggling right now with with mental health and emotional well-being and I'm in the same boat uh, as a lot of people. Uh, You just struggle, hit the ground, and you just try the best you can every day to pick yourself back up. So thank you once again for joining me on this. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.